KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. What it means for San Diego's frontline medical workers getting the COVID-19 vaccine. It's a tool for them to be able to do their job each and every day. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How nurses are reacting to another layer of protection while working on the front lines. You'll care when you can't breathe. And we're just tired. We don't get the luxury of getting to work from home on Zoom. We have to go in every day. We'll hear from the longest serving member of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, plus the change coming to Friendship Park. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Our top story on Midday Edition today is a hopeful day for the coronavirus pandemic in San Diego. The first group of frontline medical workers will be vaccinated with Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, That group includes doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, and others who are at high risk of coming into contact with a COVID patient. Joining me to talk about how the vaccine is being rolled out is Dr. Nicholas Holmes, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Rady Children's Hospital, where 2,000 doses were just received today. Uh, Dr. Holmes, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. You know, the first vaccines will be administered beginning at two this afternoon. What kind of preparation is going into getting ready to begin vaccinations? Well, the logistics for our preparation for vaccination has been somewhat complicated, but the team's done an excellent job getting us ready. First and foremost, we have to keep track of every single person that gets a vaccination, as well as giving them the information about the vaccination, because in about 21 days after their initial dose, they will have to receive a second dose. So all that information actually has to be uploaded into the federal registry, um, keeping track of vaccinations that are going across the United States. Hmm. And, you know, the vaccine itself must be stored at very low temperatures. Is the training for giving this vaccine any different than, say, a flu vaccine? No, the training's not any different. It's it's the handling and the preparation uh, following the manufacturer's recommendations, keeping it in the minus 70 degree freezer, Again, thawing it appropriately for about two hours and the reconstitution of the vaccine. And then the administration is like any other uh, vaccination that you would give. There's a limited window between the time the vaccine is bought to the temperature where it can be injected and when it essentially goes bad. Uh, that What's that time frame like and how is Rady working within it to ensure they can use all the doses in that window, which I believe is six hours? Yes, that's correct. It's six hours after the um, the vaccine is completely thawed, uh, that and reconstituted, that uh, it needs to be used. So we actually have st- risk stratified um, our staff according to the guidelines from the local health authorities. And so we'll be going through each of the tiers, starting with tier one A for those uh, uh, staff that are had the highest risk of being exposed to a COVID positive patient or potentially someone who uh, may have COVID. 
After you vaccinate staff, will you be a vaccination site for other priority groups or even the general public? And uh, if so, how are you going to handle those issues with them? So if the county asks us to participate uh, in that process, we will certainly be glad to. So our goal is making sure that the community is protected. And so we will do whatever we can to help assist in that role. And there's been lots of polling done on how many Americans intend to get the vaccination. Is uh, It's hovering around 60% overall. Is Rady requiring its staff to get the vaccine? So we're recommending at this stage to uh, get the vaccine. We can't require it and make it mandatory because, again, the FDA has approved it only for emergency use, and each individual has to consent to use the vaccines. Uh, if in the future, if uh, health authorities, whether it's the uh, local health authorities or at the state or federal level uh, mandated for healthcare workers, we will certainly be in alignment with what those recommendations are. Are you seeing people who are reluctant to take the vaccine? So far, we haven't seen uh, any reluctance. There are some questions, uh, especially for, you may have heard certain individuals in, in England uh, had an allergic reaction, what we call anaphylaxis uh, to the to the vaccine. And so we've had some questions about that. Um, but, you know, we're fortunate to have Dr. John Bradley, who's infectious disease ex- expert, as well as Dr. Mark Sawyer, who actually is on the state uh, a vaccine panel, as well as the, uh, the uh, FDA's uh, vaccine panel as well. So we have some of the world experts here to answer those specific questions. And again, they have reassured us that it's safe and effective uh, to combat COVID-19. And let me ask you personally, you know, how do you feel about getting the vaccine? Uh, I'm actually very excited, and so I will wait in line um, when it's my appropriate time uh, according to the risk stratification, and I will certainly undergo the vaccine because, again, this is the only proactive tool that we have in our tool belt to be able to combat uh, COVID-19. Certainly, we've spent a lot of efforts trying to to contain it with uh, PPE, hand washing, masks, social distancing. But again, this is the only real proactive tool. So when I have the opportunity to receive it, when it's my turn, according to risk stratification, I will be taking the vaccine. And as I mentioned earlier, Rady received 2,000 doses today. How many additional doses are you expecting? Well, that's a, a really good question. At this stage, we, we don't know. I know Governor Newsom announced that there will be some additional doses uh, to the state of California from Pfizer next week. And so we anticipate, uh, again, uh, however, the, the local health authorities dictate what percentage or what amounts each of the acute care facilities receive. Um, we have estimated that we will probably need about 7,000 doses overall in order for us to be able to vaccinate um, all of our healthcare workers. Uh, and what does it mean to frontline staff that they'll finally have some protection against the virus? Well, I think it's it's reassurance for them. Again, this is one tool for them. Um, all the things we've done so far have actually kept our staff and employees safe. And so um, all those things we will still need to continue. Even though we have the vaccine, uh, this overall will decrease their relative risk of potentially getting it. But, but they will still need to continue to do the per, using the proper PPE, hand washing, and uh, all the other protective measures again. And so it's just, a, it's a tool for them to be able to do their job each and every day. I've been speaking with Dr. Nicholas Holmes, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Holmes, thank you very much. And thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for having us today.
As you just heard, after months of working under high-risk conditions on the front lines of COVID-19, San Diego doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers are finally getting some badly needed protection. The Pfizer vaccine, with its 95% success rate, will remove the most lethal threats that healthcare professionals have been facing. But it won't remove the emotional toll that crowded ICUs and increasing deaths are taking on the staff. Joining me is Elizabeth Jones, a nurse at UCSD Medical Center in La Jolla, whom we first spoke with in March. She joins us on behalf of the California Nurses Association. And Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for having me. Have you heard how hospitals plan to administer the vaccine? In other words, who on staff would will be getting it first? So I only know UCSD's plan um, that was revealed to us on Wednesday during our weekly town hall. So the front line will be, or the first recipients will be emergency rooms and ICUs, uh, their nurses and doctors and, you know, specialty staff. And then it will be, it will roll out to secondary units that are not primarily COVID seeing. So our, our clean units would then get it and so on and so forth with people who are off-site administration would not be receiving it until the very end. There's like 30 steps to this. So that's what they've told us. The plan is also because there are potentials for side effects that they'll be doing it in waves. So they won't do the entire department at once because they don't want everyone to be out with, you know, the potential side effects of flu and, and just feeling under the weather. Or if there is a much worse side effect that someone may have like anaphylaxis. Um, so they're going to do it in in small groups in each department based on the tiers that they have set out. Where in that line will you fall, Elizabeth? What department do you work in? The way they've drawn this up, I work in a surgical oncology and transplant PCU, a progressive care, which is like an ICU step down. So my I would be in the second or third tier, depending on how many injections they get. And what does getting this vaccine mean to you? Personally, I have mixed reviews or mixed feelings about it. I'm really excited about it. The fact that we might, you know, if it works as well as they say it does, that we will have, you know, some immunity and life can go back to the way it was prior to COVID. And I would hope that people would would still be more cautious and we would take a lesson from what COVID has done to this country or to the world, really, and just be more conscientious with hygiene and the way we treat the environment. Um, I'm also scared though, that this is a very, very new vaccine and it's a new virus that's come out. We don't know the long-term side effects of what could happen. So I have mixed feelings about it. I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I have faith in the scientists that that created this, but I'm also very, very nervous because we don't know what the long-term effects have been or how this virus really mutates in the long run since it is so new. Given your mixed feelings, do you plan to get the vaccine? I still, I'm going to be 100% honest, I am very undecided. UC promises us that they will, if we we have the right to decline, and if we decline, they will ask us again. I'm going to wait and see how my colleagues do with it. Um, I also don't want to take away from the people who are dealing with it head on from the beginning, from the front. So if I have to wait my turn because I'm not seeing COVID patients, I'd rather someone from the ICU or the ER get it over me because they're seeing them more frequently than I am. 
Now, we last spoke to you in March when there were PPE shortages, calls for safer working conditions for healthcare workers. Do you have enough safety equipment now? The PPE, we absolutely do. Thankfully, we have a a good stock and we get daily briefings about how much uh, you're either red, yellow or or green. And we're in the green with with the PPE, which is great. The issue now is staffing and beds, available beds. We are, as as a profession across the board, I would say probably across the entire world, we're tired. And every day we have more and more people who are just burnt out and they, you know, don't have the energy to come to work or they've been sick themselves or their family's sick and they need to take care of them. So we're, we're tired and that's, primarily where our stuff, where our shortage is now. It's not the PPE, it's, it's the staff. Um, we've had a lot of retiree or, you know, older nurses who are on the brink of retirement say that this was the final straw for them because they were at a high risk of catching the virus. They said, it's not worth it. I may as well retire. So we've had a lot of people leave as well. So that's where we're at with this is it's, it's a nursing shortage at this point. Well, as the hospital load increases, there have been calls to decrease the standard number of nurses required for each ICU bed. Is that a viable solution in your opinion? It is so dangerous. I had this conversation with friends and family multiple times. We're really, really lucky in California. And this is a reason why a lot of people come to work in California. This nursing ratio is one of a kind. It's the only one in the country. And by increasing the amount of patients nurses have to look after, you're increasing the risk for mistakes and death um, in these patient loads. I've worked in other states where I've had eight, nine, 10 patients and things get missed. So this is really, really dangerous. And the patients that we're taking care of, because we've kind of limited who is being admitted and who we're operating now at this point with the surge coming, these patients that are in the hospital need to be there and they're very, very, very sick. So that's more stress on us, more resources, more time at each bedside, but then you add another patient or a a fourth patient or fifth patient, and you're increasing the risk of things getting missed or people dying. It's a terrible idea. There are now some better treatments for cases of COVID. Have you been seeing better outcomes for patients lately? Um, Yes, I would say so. Because we've had the data and we've we've been able to to learn as we as we go along with these patients, we are treating better. I personally don't work in a COVID unit. I work in a clean unit, but we have seen the numbers drop. And you know, around Halloween, Thanksgiving, those numbers started to rise. So they are staying there longer, and it is taking more of a toll. Now, after months of this relentless work, how are you and and the hospital staff doing? We're tired. Honestly, we are just so tired and it's really disheartening when we go into into work every single day to take care of strangers. You know, our patients are strangers. We, we get to learn them and and love them as, as time goes on, but these are strangers and we care for them. Like we care for our own family. This is a, a, a duty and a calling and it's something we're super passionate about but then to turn around and watch the news and see people calling it a hoax or being like, I'm over the virus. I, I, I don't care anymore if I get COVID. Well, you'll care when you get it or you care when you're sick and you need a hospital or a bed or your grandmother or your parent gets it or your kid gets it and they don't do well. 
You'll care when you can't breathe. And we're just tired. We don't get the luxury of getting to work from home on Zoom. We have to go in every day, put the PPE on, wear the masks the entire duration of our shifts. My hands are bleeding from washing my hands so much. And I was pretty vigilant before, but like now I'm pretty OCD about it. My hands bleed. We're tired. It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And it's we don't get a break from it. It's either in the hospital or it's at home or it's on the TV or it's on the radio. We're tired. We're so tired. What do you want the public to know about what they might be able to do to help you guys out? I know most people don't care or they care and they don't think it's going to happen to them. But when it does happen to you, you'll know all about it. And just because you recover and you survive COVID doesn't mean your life goes back to the way it was before. I have a colleague who was one of the first patients to get it, and he's still not healed. He's still unable to work. He's still reeling from his infection nearly a year later. And if you don't need to go out, please don't go out. We miss holidays as healthcare workers all the time with our friends and family. I know it sucks, but please like, be thoughtful. Stay home. If you don't feel well, don't show up to something. You can miss it. It's not, this fear of missing out needs to to end. So please just stay home and be respectful of the people who are working so hard to save the lives of strangers. I've been speaking with Elizabeth Jones, a nurse at UCSD Medical Center in La Jolla. She, She was speaking on behalf of the California Nurses Association. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you for everything. And thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Stay healthy. It should be noted that Pfizer's clinical trials have shown no severe side effects to its COVID vaccine. According to information released by the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, the most common side effects were soreness at the point of injection, fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The longest-serving member of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors steps down next month. Diane Jacob will leave office after representing her East County District for 28 years. Supervisor Jacob has seen mayors, governors, and presidents come and go during her tenure and seen both the landscape and politics of San Diego County change substantially. She can look back over a career that saw San Diego increase its fire protection and struggle with the issues of housing, social services, and development. Joining me is San Diego County Supervisor Diane Jacob, and welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's it's a great pleasure for me to be here. You know, with you and longtime Supervisor Greg Cox leaving the board next month, it really is the end of an era at the county. How are the needs of the county different now from when you took office in 1993? Well, if we look back to 1993, the county was on the brink of bankruptcy and it was drowning in red ink. And the board at that time had 
the challenge of fixing the finances. That was the number one priority. Until we got the fiscal house in order, we could not really move forward to do anything else as we have done over the last 28 years. So fast forward to today, in fact, just a couple of years back, is we have huge challenges now facing us with a housing shortage, the homelessness issue, behavioral health issues. And those issues were always out there, but not like they are today. So big, big challenges today that are very, very different. And I think the new board is is really going to face those challenges head on. You know, the county board has been frequently criticized for being too careful with its reserves and not addressing major problems like social services for people in need or mental health services. Now, as you step back and assess your time in office, do you think some of those criticisms were fair? No, I don't. I don't at all because the reserves were exactly what we needed to have in place in case of emergency. And we saw the 2003 Cedar Fire where the county was able to step up and use some of those emergency funds to help those fire victims. And also in 2007, had we not had the reserves that we had today, we we would not have been able to help our businesses with the economic stimulus program and rental system, other programs where we're helping both business and individuals during this COVID crisis. How has the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the county, how has that compared to other challenges the county has faced during your time on the board? It's like no other. This pandemic is something that that none of us have ever seen. Uh, during my time on the board. And the only thing in my lifetime I could go back to was the polio epidemic back in the 50s. And I was in high school at the time, and I remember that. I was in junior high and high school at the time, and I remember it very vividly. But this pandemic is even different than that. Huge challenges, the effect not only on the health of the people in San Diego, but also on the businesses. And then There's been so much disagreement in the community, and even with elected officials, even with elected officials on my board about how this should be handled. And it's it's easy to sit back and be critical of somebody else when you're not walking in their shoes and you don't have the same information. And I, you know, I could be as critical as anybody else in terms of how I feel that this has been handled. But that really, at this point, doesn't do us any good. We really need to come together. The lights at the end of the tunnel, the vaccinations are out today, and soon people will get those vaccinations, and I hope they do take advantage of them. It's not going to do any good to have the availability of the vaccinations if people will not get the vaccine. Are there things that you think the county board should do, should be sure to do, to respond to the pandemic and overcoming the economic fallout? Because of our, uh, we've been on sound financial ground, we have been able to put in almost $30 million to uh, assist our businesses. And then even more than that, to assist some folks with their rent. And we've waived fees in different departments uh, to help our businesses and individuals. So from a county government standpoint, I feel that we've done as much as we can do and as much as we can afford. The feds need to step up 
And it's very frustrating to watch the arguing in Washington about another stimulus package when we have our businesses sitting here shut down once again and, and really struggling. Some of them may not, may not be coming back. How did the devastation of the Cedar Fire back in 2003, how did that change the county's attitude toward fire protection? It was the first time in the history of San Diego County that a fire in our backcountry area actually went into the cities. What happened at that moment in time was a realization of all five supervisors and three of the five basically represent cities. But it was a realization then with the Cedar Fire that, hey, this is a regional issue. Even though I had been saying it for some time, it was, it was kind of like, oh, that's a backcountry issue. That's Jacob's issue. That's Horn's issue. And we were able then to really pick up on the momentum to bring together the unincorporated area volunteer fire agencies. And there were about 35 of them at the time that we consolidated, and about 1.5 million acres. But actually, the story of the San Diego County Fire Protection District, as we know it today, goes way back to 1993, when I came on LAFCO, I had asked for an analysis of the discrepancies with both service and finances of our fire departments in the unincorporated area. And they were huge. With that, we moved forward little by little, working with fire chiefs and working with others to try to bring money in to help out those volunteer fire departments. See, it was back in the 70s that the county got out of the fire business, and I felt that was a bad decision, and I had set out then to try to make that right. It took quite a few years. We kept putting more money in. We did a micro study, a macro study. We got all the data, all the information, and then the Cedar Fire hit, and that moment in time really speeded up the infusion of money that the counties put into it to the tune of over $575 million a year. And that's over 50 million annually. We have the fire stations in the unincorporated area that house firefighters uh, 24 seven. We also have paramedic service that we don't have. So the end result is we are able as a county now with Fire Protection District to be a partner with other city departments and also departments like Lakeside and San Miguel that are fire districts to be able to come together to fight a fire. And I can tell you without question, two things. One, we are far better prepared today to fight a fire and respond to those emergencies, which include medical emergencies than we were ever, ever before. And we have coordination of effort in this region among our fire agencies like none other in the entire country. And what more do you think the county might be able to do to help us with our fire protection needs? Well, we will continue to invest and and to improve in in the fire protection area. Uh, There's always more to be done, but the heavy lifting has been done. So that enables us now to 
really invest as we have in the last couple of years in other issues that we're facing, the challenges of homelessness and, and behavioral health. We have a lot of people on the streets that have mental health problems. And then our seniors, um, those with Alzheimer's disease. And we, we just had a conversation earlier this morning with West Health and we have geriatric emergency departments now. We will in every one of our hospital emergency departments. And those are specialized emergency departments for senior citizens that will specifically address the needs of those seniors. So it's from seniors. It's not just the fire and the emergency medical but it's uh, the homeless situation and, and, and across the board. And let's not forget our kids. We've done a lot. And I go back as an elementary school teacher and one of my passions are kids. And I saw firsthand when I was teaching that you, you get out there, get the kids out there on a ball field as a part of a team. They're learning life skills. Uh, they're actually by exercising and, and involving themselves in physical activity, that carried directly into the classroom, into their academics to where I saw students that were not doing well in their math or reading or their academics go out onto the field and be successful, come into the classroom, and it really improved their academics in the classroom. And, and also for our kids, if they're exercising, which is good for them, it's keeping them out of trouble. So we've managed over the last 28 years in partnering with others. We've built over 130 different ball fields and, and pools and parks and playgrounds and you name it. Uh, my goal was to have the best recreational facilities in the region and all targeted towards our kids. Now, it's well known, Supervisor Jacob, that you've been a major critic of San Diego Gas and Electric. You've argued against rate increases, the Sunrise Power Link, the public safety power shutoffs. In fact, you've had a real feud going with SDG&E. What do you hope the county's relationship with SDG&E becomes moving forward? Well, let me first be clear. My problem with SDG&E are not the workers that are out there. Uh, day in and day out. It's with the management and those that set the policies for SDG&E. And frankly, it's a monopoly. And whenever you have a monopoly of any kind, and in this case, electricity is a lifeblood commodity. It's something that we as people cannot do without. And there's a huge lack of competition in the market. So what I'm hoping going forward is that there is some competition to SDG&E. The ultimate would be to form a municipal, a municipal utility district. I don't know if the region's elected officials collectively have the stomach for that, but if you look at public power and public power systems, not just in California, but throughout the nation, it's a lot cheaper. And we sit here in San Diego County with SDG&E, and we have some of the highest electricity rates in the region. And that's not right, and it's not fair to our businesses. It's not fair to individuals. There's a better way. One challenge that remains is for the county to develop a climate action plan that won't be thrown out in court. Why has that been so difficult? 
Well, the county got it wrong. And unfortunately, part of the problem was looking at the mitigation being out of the county and even out of the country for what they call these offsets where you could mitigate in in our region on the greenhouse gas emissions. That was one of the primary reasons that the court said that the, the county's climate action plan was invalid. And it should have been fixed a long time ago. Uh, Supervisor Fletcher and I, we have not voted to appeal the court decision. Uh, I, both of us, Nathan can speak for himself, of course, but, but both of us believe very clearly that the county should have focused all its money, all its energy on fixing the climate action plan. I had sat down some time ago with representatives of the Sierra Club, and I truly believe that there is a plan, there is a way to come up with a climate action plan that works, and it, there just needs to be the will to do it. And with the majority of the board, I have not seen the will to do just that. And the county staff has gotten it wrong. Our lawyers got it wrong. So now's, now's the time. Get it right. You think the new board will be more successful then? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Now, Supervisor Jacob, the candidate you preferred to step into your District 2 chair on the board didn't make it. Joel Anderson will be sworn in next month. How do you think that will impact your district? Time will tell. Time will tell. I reached out to Joel and after the election results were certified and, and it offered to him that I would help in his transition anyway that I possibly could. I feel that that's in the best interest of the people that uh, he will serve, that I have served over the last 28 years. My interest is in, in the people and I care a lot about the people in the district and their needs and moving forward. Um, again, no one knows how an individual is going to govern once they're, uh, until they're in the seat and start doing it. So I, along with many other people, are going to be watching. Uh, obviously, I, I was disappointed in the outcome, but it is what it is. And did Mr. Anderson take you up on your offer to help him with the transition? Um, yes, he was very appreciative and, and again, will help in any way he wants. It's up to him how much help he wants. During most of your time on the board, the board was all Republican. Now there's a Democratic majority. How do you see that working out? I don't see the issues that we face in local government being Republican or Democrat. The issues are people issues, and the needs of people need to be met regardless of what the party is. It should be people over party. It should be people over politics. I'm very, very concerned about the term limits and the fact that a member of the Board of Supervisors now will be limited to two terms, which would be a total of eight years. I'm not sure that term limits is going to give a person enough time to really dig in and take on some, some major projects. I mean, I, I can go back and tell you some, a couple of the projects. It's taken me more than 20 years to complete, but you never give up. So I believe that there will be a shift in priorities, a shift in, in spending. But again, I would hope 
the, the new board members will keep an eye on what's important to the people and to listen to the people and hear what people are saying, not just a small vocal minority, but all the people. It's that silent majority too that is not so vocal that, that needs to be supported and needs to be heard. What are your plans for your next chapter? I have a list 28 years long, and um, we have a ranch in, in Homul in Deerhorn Valley, and uh, we have contracted with the El Capitan Stadium Association Ag Program for well over 15 years now, and we grow oat hay on the property. So to do a little more ranching and farming activity on the ranch and I really need to improve my golf game. It's it's suffered a bit. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I've been speaking <laughs> with San Diego County Supervisor Diane Jacob. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Recent data released by school districts show that while many students are falling behind during distance learning, English learners are among those suffering the most. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke to teachers and experts about the struggle of learning a new language in a new country while schools remain closed. Damien Patterson works with English learners in the Grossmont Union High School District. He said they're in an almost impossible situation. Imagine myself going to another country and having to do what they're being asked to do in Arabic or having to do that in Mandarin. I would fail miserably, you know, but that's what they're being asked to do. Data compiled by the district show more failing grades across all student groups. But Patterson says English learners are getting D's and F's at disproportionately higher rates than their peers. And it's not just at Grossmont. Officials at Sweetwater Union High School District and Poway Unified School District see similar trends. Being in a class, being able to practice that language with your peers and, and have those, those engaging conversations and, and where you're using the language, that's by far the best way to learn and to help these students become successful. Educators say this crisis is yet another example of the pandemic amplifying existing inequalities. Jorge Cuevas Antion is the district advisor for curriculum and instruction of dual language and English learners at the San Diego County Office of Education. The, the fact that students are getting D's and F's are probably a symptom of larger issues that are going on for these students in their lives. In California's public schools, English learners are more likely to come from low-income families and experience homelessness and are less likely to graduate than their peers. There's a lot of reasons why this category, which has to do with their linguistic background, is just one of the many uh, hurdles that they are experiencing uh, when they're uh, trying to get an education, especially now. That's why one teacher working with English learners says handing out grades to these students is only making things worse. Anna Monhe is an English language development resource teacher at Otay Ranch High School in the Sweetwater Union High School District. It's unfair because the grades are assuming everyone's internet connection is equal and everybody's home life situation is equal and that they have a learning space in their home and they are you know in quiet locations with no other obligations monhe says she's doing her best to help non-bilingual teachers work with their students who only speak spanish but the virtual classroom puts up significant barriers many students have never met me. So when I do reach outreach to them, they don't respond because they don't know who I am. They've never, they're new to the school, they've never met me. And so 
that opportunity is lost on them. And Monhe says she often ends up helping both the students and their parents. Under normal circumstances, I think one of the biggest challenges for ELD students is that they don't have a strong advocate because their parents are also English learners for the most part. Back in Grossmont, Patterson says radical measures will be necessary to undo the damage the pandemic has done to English learners. I personally feel like we're going to have to go back and start from the beginning in, in most cases because a lot of these students come to us not being literate or you know fluent in English or literate in their L1 or their primary language. And they've had no, no educational access, I guess I'm trying to say, since March. Joining me is KPBS education reporter, Joe Hong. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can give us some background on how English learners are usually taught in San Diego schools. Are they taught in their native languages or in English? Yeah, so it really depends on the student. Um, the category of English learner really encompasses a wide range of students from uh, students who don't speak any English to students who are sort of on their way there. So for students who don't speak any at all, they're more likely to be in bilingual classrooms where some of the instruction does take place in their native language. Whereas maybe other students who are more advanced in their English will be uh, in the general education classroom and they'll be paired with students who are maybe bilingual to sort of help them in the transition. So it really depends on the student. About what percentage of San Diego Unified's student population are regarded as English learners? Yeah, so uh, at San Diego Unified, which is, the, of course, the county's largest, it's about uh, 20, 21 percent. And that's pretty consistent with uh, the rest of the county. Typically in more affluent areas, you tend to have lower rates of uh, English learners. And the highest I've seen is in Escondido, where um, about 38 percent of students are qualified as English learners. How is learning English different for kids when their classes are remote? Yeah, virtual learning comes with all kinds of challenges for all students. But if you're learning a language or working in a language that you're not comfortable with, losing that in-person sort of mode of learning is is ex- extremely problematic because you no longer have the, the body language or the visual cues that are so often helpful when you when you are learning a new language in in a zoom setting you're sort of less likely to ask a question if you don't understand something and you know when you're learning a language practice is key and in the physical classroom it's hard enough for certain students to try and answer a question in english uh, when they're not comfortable with the language but that gets even more challenging when you're in a, in a zoom setting Now, your report, Joe, highlights not only the specific problem of learning a new language remotely, but how the stresses of home life are affecting these kids. Can you tell us more about how their experience of remote learning may be different from more affluent kids? Yeah, so uh, data from really across the country uh, show that English learners are more likely to come from low-income families. They're more likely to experience homelessness and um, experience other traumas. They're also more likely to have to work to support their families in the economic sort of uh, consequences of the pandemic as well. So these challenges sort of just add on to the academic challenges of learning a language right now. 
How are districts reaching out to students and their parents to help them get better grades? It's really about being proactive. So I think teachers right now are spending more time than ever uh, making phone calls, sending emails, and uh, just trying to establish relationships with parents to sort of really get them on board with this and try to get that additional support at home. If there is something going on, uh, you know, in, in, in the home life for these students, teachers are really working to, to address those as well and just trying to be flexible um, with their students and, and their families. Since many students, including the English learners that you're reporting on, have gotten bad grades during this remote learning time, is there any effort maybe to stop grading kids during this time? Yeah, so I think that that's a real challenge because, you know, you got to keep students accountable and motivated. And uh, you're not always doing them a favor when you don't give them grades or go too easy on them, right? But I think the teachers who work with English learners uh, that I spoke to, they all seem to agree that grading these students right now is not the right way to go. A lot of these students don't have stable internet connections. Uh, I mentioned they don't have sort of the stable home lives or the, the support at home. So these teachers feel like they're they're penalizing these students. Um, and sort of the higher rates of Ds and Fs uh, show the lack of grace that these students are being given right now. And is there a concern that this year of remote learning and bad grades may have a lasting effect on some English learner students? So the teachers and and educators I've spoken with, they're hopeful because we're still just, you know, halfway through the school year. And if the vaccine arrives and the the pandemic starts to wind down, um, you know, there's still time to sort of intervene and make up for uh, that learning loss to make sure these students don't fall behind in the long term. But what I can say is that English learners tend to graduate at uh, lower rates than their peers. Even when things are normal, learning isn't easy for English learners because of all the other things that I mentioned that uh, they typically experience. So I think educators really do have reason to be concerned, but it it seems like they are uh, cautiously optimistic about what they'll be able to do in the remainder of the school year. And I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hung. Joe, thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. And I'm Jade Hindman. Friendship Park sits on the border between Mexico and San Diego, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's meant to tie the binational community together. It's a place where people meet, hold prayer services and reunions. It's a symbolic bridge. In the Trump administration's final days, there are now plans to build a wall by replacing current fencing with 30-foot fencing, and some say it's a further desecration of the historic park. Here to talk about this is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Max, welcome. Hi, good to be here. Max, uh, describe what the fence at Friendship Park looks like and how it will change. So right now, there's two fences at Friendship Park that uh, divide Tijuana from 
the, the border state park right there. So you've got uh, around an 18 foot fence that's made out of metal that abuts Tijuana. And that's where people have painted murals. People can reach their hands through. And these slats that basically allow people to see through aren't very large at all. And then a few feet away from there is what you have is the secondary fence, which is much smaller. It's um, on the beach. Of course, it's made out of chain link. And then a little further up, it's made out of um, kind of normal fence that we would see maybe a little bit uh, like a secure garage, something like that. So the changes that they're proposing is that both of the primary fence and the secondary fence will be replaced by these 30-foot high bollards. That, and we've seen that across the rest of the San Diego sector, is the replacement of uh, existing border fence. And of course, some of these were Vietnam-era landing mats that they said no longer fit its operational needs. So you saw those uh, be replaced in places much further east. This is the first attempt to change it uh, to the west and reaching right to the water. And so it's, it's proposing a radical change to the space because it's these two 30-foot high walls. So will these changes then impact the ability of visitors to see and touch friends and family on the other side of the border? The idea of people just kind of being able to walk over to the fence from the U.S. side, that's not really a reality. Usually it has to be already worked out with Border Patrol to visit and see friends. And of course, there's several times throughout the year that Border Patrol allows this to happen, either for prayer services, family reunions. For a while, they were doing weddings, things like that. So already it's very secure. Um, But what would happen with this um, visibility would be that basically – uh, you wouldn't really be able to see as much as you currently do right now. It's In fact, you kind of have this moment where you could see through the fence and kind of imagine what it would be like without a, a, a border there, a border barrier. But right now, if you were to add those two fences like they have on the rest of the border, I've been there, uh, it's very tough to see through them. So why does the Trump administration say the fence needs to be replaced? Border Patrol told me that it no longer fits its operational security needs, that these are outdated fences, and that because of uh, what they consider to be increased activity along the border, uh, that these need to be replaced. And the best way to do that would be these 30-foot high bollards. And what can you tell us about whether there have been problems with people crossing the border illegally at Friendship Park? Friendship Park is, uh, and that area of the border, is one of the most uh, secure locations along the border. You always have a Border Patrol vehicle right up on that hill. You have several video cameras and you have an aircraft that, uh, either a drone or a helicopter that consistently goes back and forth along the border. So there is a lot of eyes on it. Uh, That doesn't mean people don't cross. People do at certain times, especially if there are days where there is a heavy marine layer which interferes with visibility. But much like the rest of the border, um, if somebody does cross, um, a lot of them are apprehended fairly quickly, and especially people are, are don't intend to cross at that location just because of how secure it already is. Mm. So what's been the reaction to this um, additional fencing by people who use the park and other advocates? So for uh, several years, uh, the group, the Friends of Friendship Park, have been working with the uh, Border Patrol to keep this Friendship Park going and to make it accessible to the public. They believe this would be a serious change. John Fanestel, he's with the organization. He told me the park would lose its character if the new fencing was built. 
So the, the whole purpose of the place is binational encounter and to build these intimidating uh, walls to make it feel more and more like you have to, you know, almost like you're visiting in prison is to really undermine the spirit of the place. So tell me about what Friendship Park means to the community. It means a lot. From the Tijuana side, uh, if you go over into Mexico, I know it's tough right now, but in the past, um, again, you could reach over and just kind of look into the U.S. Um, And that's something that I think a lot of people don't really do as much as they could in San Diego and something that people really want to, um, the people behind Friendship Park want to encourage is come down to uh, this beautiful state park that you have on the border and see into Tijuana because right there you have Playas de Tijuana, which is a uh, thriving beach uh, residential commercial uh, atmosphere where people are having a community right up into the fence. So it really shows kind of the dual nature of, of our Tijuana, San Diego City that are just divided by this wall. So people really feel that Friendship Park is what keeps these two sides of the wall together and each step that's taken to divide uh, the park um, makes it harder to uh, encourage this type of friendship that they really believe in. And in January, U.S. Border Patrol demolished part of the park. What can you tell me about that? In January, Border Patrol demolished Friendship Garden. So in addition to the park, they run other areas. There's the marker of the first official part of the border. And then there's this garden, half of which is on the U.S. side and half of which is on the Mexican side. And uh, in January of last year, that the U.S. side was destroyed um, randomly one morning. And uh, Border Patrol actually said a few days later that this was a mistake. They apologized for doing it and were going to help uh, in replanting it. Of course, right now, if they were to replace the new primary wall, it would be destroyed again. So what would advocates of the park like to see happen instead of this fence? So advocates for the park next year will be uh, celebrating 50 years of the park. And since then, First Lady Pat Nixon came to the park and inaugurated it and said that there's not going to, you know, I hope there's one day that there will be no fence. So they're going to be unveiling next year uh, a new plan for the park that will actually create that binational encounter that Fanistil talked about uh, that, that basically will allow people to see each other, meet with each other, do so in a way that Border Patrol will be made feeling comfortable, but also, as he says, doesn't make it seem like a prison. And for now, what is the timeline for this new fencing to be built? And um, could the incoming administration change that? Yeah, it's entirely up in the air. Border Patrol told me yesterday that construction won't be completed until late next year. But they've already told the Friends of Friendship Park that they're going to begin construction shortly and that contracts have already been issued. Uh, Of course, the Biden administration has said that they will build no new border wall along uh, the southern border. Of course, that's kind of a... uh, a vague way of explaining it because uh, this wouldn't be new border wall. This would be a replacement wall. And if the contracts are already given out, does that mean, you know, it's being built or basically these are design build contracts? So there's a lot of wiggle room for the Biden administration to either let this move forward or stop it. It's entirely possible uh, seeing the reaction that people are having to this, that they will stop it. Um, uh, Then again, they might also, because the Biden administration much like the Obama administration, is going to be looking at having a a deterrent 
uh, posture along the south southwestern border, we might just let it go ahead. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.